From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you're familiar with the fundamentals of wellness, which include nutrition, physical exercise, stress management, and spiritual wellness, you may wonder how these apply to someone who has a chronic health condition like heart disease, diabetes, or an autoimmune disorder. Here with me to explain is Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's Upstate's Assistant Dean of Wellness, where he's also an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nanavati. Oh, it's wonderful to be back, Amber. Well, I wonder if people with a chronic health condition have trouble thinking about wellness, you know, when they're, when they're struggling with an underlying medical problem to begin with. So what have you seen among your patients? Well, I think there's a lot of things we think about, you know, people, when they have chronic conditions, sometimes they're genetic or inherent in the family. And so people think, well, you know, there's no way I was going to escape it. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, and they continue to go on with their lifestyle as it is. Uh, and sometimes that can be the problem because that's what's literally fed the condition, right? So we know that nutrition and physical exercise are two of the most important factors when it comes to uh, the leading chronic conditions, whether it be, you know, coronary artery disease or cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, COPD or chronic lung disease, diabetes, obesity, which tends to feed a lot of the other conditions as well. And so there's a, a kind of a constant or con consistent stream uh, of behaviors that can lead to a lot of different chronic conditions over time. So even if you have this propensity in your family for a condition, some of your actions might um, lessen the effects or improve your ability to get things done, even though you have diabetes or heart disease or something. Absolutely. So, you know, we think and, and some uh, you know, kind of statisticians or epidemiologists talk about the fact that 40% uh, is genetic, 40% is what we do, and then 20% is happenstance. And these are approximate numbers. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that there are certain things that are genetic that, you know, show up at different stages of our life. But what we do can impact whether, it's, you know, the genes turn on or off, meaning the switch turns on or off. And that's where people have much more power much more ability to control or at least have a little bit of control over their destiny as to what shows up and what doesn't. And does that mean it's a hundred percent? Absolutely not. But what it does do is brings that power and the ability to have that control sense of ownership back to ourselves versus kind of just throwing our hands up and saying, you know, I can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to go and have that fast food and, you know, eat the sad, as we call it, the standard American diet. And unfortunately, that tends to be the wrong decision that, that's made. So how do you talk to these patients about nutrition? Because, you know, teaching someone that what they eat may or may not impact, you know, the management of their disease. How, how do you have that conversation? Yeah, so there are, you know, first of all, as far as resources online that if people want to get more information, uh, since we'll be limited on some time. So the Harvard Healthy Eating Plate is a great resource to learn more about uh, nutrition, it's evidence-guided information that's a little different than the government's food plate, which is expert opinion. Uh, but when I talk to patients about nutrition, what I help them understand is, you know, they're gonna eat anyway, but the food they eat can either turn on or off a switch, but more importantly, it can actually help them to feel better overall. And so I start by the fundamentals with nutrition, which if nothing else, uh, the vegetables, right? and trying to get seven to nine servings of vegetables a day 
uh, just today I gave a talk to a group of uh, students who, you know, got the number, but didn't know what the portion sizes were, right? So, you know, one measuring cup of raw vegetables is a portion or a serving size or a half a measuring cup of cooked is a serving size. So based on that, seven to nine servings is much more manageable throughout the day than if you just think seven to nine, oh my God, that's a lot, right? The other thing with nutrition that I tell, you know, people is there are five words to think about, which are actually great life advice as well, right? So it's portion, it's proportion, it's preparation, it's timing, and it's consistency, right? So think about portion sizes, right? You go to a restaurant and suddenly their portion size is smaller, and we as Americans feel gypped, right? Or I heard somebody last week tell me they gave me a European portion. I'm in America, right? And you sit there going, well, wait a minute, you know, the whole idea of portion control is not only balancing calories, but also helping with your digestion. Because again, food within 30 minutes starts to go into your intestines. And so if you have too much and it's not broken down well enough, now it's going to go to the intestines and not be well prepared, right? Uh, and so you think about the portion size, you think about proportions. So if half your plate is vegetables, generally you're going to end up in the right place as long as the other half isn't greasy and fried, right? I mean, so we have to pick and choose. Then you talk about preparation and again, greasy and fried or even red meat would get vilified. The real issue there isn't really about the red meat though. That's supposed to be limited. How it's prepared if it's cooked on high heat, if it's charred or if it's well done, there's a chemical called dioxin that's formed that's been associated with colon, bladder, and even prostate cancer in men, right? So again, the preparation matters. Timing, right? Carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, there are no bad food groups, but there are bad foods within each group, right? And so when we know that, we can pick and choose better. And carbs, which are a great fuel, you know, can be front-loaded in the day, and then you burn them off, use them up, versus back-loading them with a heavy carb meal at nighttime, and then not having the ability to burn it off so it gets stored as starch, right? Uh, and consistency, right? So we know that cruciferous vegetables, when you get three servings or more, have actually shown some studies to reverse plaque in your arteries. But if you have it once a month, that's not gonna do much. And so the key is you wanna be consistent with those things as a part of your routine to start creating that shift and rebalance your nutritive components, your body. And all the stuff that I'm saying as an impact, which we're learning now, on the bacteria that are normal inside our gut lining. And when they get shifted, it's like the tobos don't work. Nutrients can't get in, toxins can't get out. When you start to eat healthier, you rebalance those gut bacteria, what we call the microbiome, and suddenly your tobos are functioning healthily. Nutrients get in, toxins get out, the body's much healthier. So have you had patients with chronic health conditions who have really made a remarkable change in their eating habits? And are they able to come back and tell you that they notice a difference? So I'll give you one of the most stark examples. Uh, I was referred a patient uh, from a local family physician who uh, had, you know, autoimmune arthritis. You know, it was pretty severe. She was debilitated to the point of being in a wheelchair. And over a span of about 9 to 12 months, we were able to work with her nutrition. Uh, specifically, she was eating very consistent with kind of a standard American diet, kind of a meat and potatoes, drinking, you know, a few sodas a day, uh, that type of a thing. And over the span of those nine months, she went from being in a wheelchair to being a walker uh, or using a walker to a cane uh, to actually being able to walk in without any assistive device. 
And really what she did was she embraced uh, the Mediterranean diet approach. Uh, and so changed up what she was eating, got rid of the inflammatory foods, uh, you know, started to eat, you know, the beans and lentils and legumes, which by the way, in the Mediterranean diet, uh, even though the fish and wine tasted great, the legumes gave the best benefit for overall morbidity, which is sickness and mortality or death from all causes. So she started to eat this way, uh, got rid of the soda, started to drink more water, started to eat more vegetables, you know, salads and greens and cruciferous vegetables. And the impact, and, you know, it wasn't pills, it was food. Uh, and that really made the impact so that now she pretty much sees a doctor, you know, once or twice a year versus having to go in monthly because she was in pain. And more importantly, she's happier. Her quality of life is better. And this is somebody who took the power back, who got the power back with the right information, right? And then acting on it consistently, right? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati about how the core four tenets of wellness apply to patients with chronic health conditions. We've covered nutrition, so now I'd like to talk to you about exercise. Is it safe for someone with heart disease or diabetes to exercise? So exercise is something that what we talk about is a relative to the person. You asked the question about heart disease specifically and even diabetes. And we like to make sure if somebody has heart disease that they should at least have a, a good or decent heart evaluation done uh, so that they get clearance from their healthcare providers to be able to work out because oftentimes people will do things on their own. And things like the weekend warrior phenomena where people overload and overboard, go overboard can put a lot of stress on somebody's body when they're not conditioned for it. So having a program, right, or working with a trainer or your healthcare provider to come up with a program that gradually increases your activity. Because again, remember, this is not a one-time, one-time fix. This is a lifelong change that you want to sustain. It's a habit you want to form. And with exercise, a nice pearl is that people who do 10 minutes a day are more likely to form a habit than people who do 30 minutes three times a week. So again, that word consistency out of the things I was talking about, right? Portion, proportion, preparation, all those things, uh, timing, uh, these are all very important with exercise. So one, it's valuable. Two, the current guidelines say that getting 300 minutes of moderate intense activity per week. Uh, so moderate intense means going hard enough that you can speak in small sentences, but not so that you're going to you know, pass out or have a long-winded conversation. Uh, 300 minutes of uh, aerobic activity plus one or two sessions of uh, weight-based training are what are recommended, right? Uh, the WHO has data that showed that people that got up to seven hours, so that would be 420 minutes of moderate intense activity, compared to people who got less than 30 minutes a week, the people that got to seven hours had a 40% lower chance of premature death from all causes, right? There's no pill that gives you those odds, right? Uh, and when you think about those cruciferous vegetables and eating three a day, three servings, reversing plaque and arteries, which again, pills don't do, right there, you've got two major tools that can actually reverse chronic disease that a person can do on their own versus needing a prescription for, right? This is the power we want people to have with good information. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, routines uh, sometimes get in the way uh, or what we believe to be our subcultures or, you know, this is our tradition. We always have pizza on Friday night, you know, uh, wings on Thursday nights, or people have their routines, or, you know, 
play darts on Tuesday nights and then we have wings and beer or go bowling. And then of course, we're going to have a couple of drinks. And the reality is, you know, the working out part is fine. Softball leagues that afterwards go to the bar, right? All those kinds of things. Uh, and again, you know, I'm not casting stones on anybody. I've lived all of those lives. But at the same time, when we know better, we can do better. And if we have health conditions specifically, now we're actually being more targeted with our lifestyle as a therapeutic intervention of itself versus, oh, that's just my lifestyle and now I need pills, right? Now, thinking about consistency, some of the autoimmune diseases wax and wane. Is it okay for someone not to push themselves to exercise if they're having an off day? So that phrase moderation is key, right? Uh, is really important. When it comes to autoimmune conditions, uh, especially when you think about conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, et cetera, where there are multiple factors that can cause a flare, right? What we wanna try to understand when somebody has a flare or is not feeling well is can we find the trigger in that instance itself, right? So was it that they went to a holiday party, right? And then ate stuff that they don't normally eat and that triggered inflammation, right? Then we know that it's gonna take a little bit of time to get out of their system and they'll be fine. Uh, and when people are flared up, to overexert can actually be uh, traumatic. Uh, and so they have to be very careful. What I will say is that people that have autoimmune conditions, if they have inflammation of joints, stiffness, you know, that sort of thing, uh, therapeutic pools are actually very nice. Uh, usually 98 degrees and you don't have to go swimming even, you can just be in it and do some walking and that sort of thing. So you don't have to do sign up for the water aerobics class, but you can be in a part of the pool where you can just walk in it. And that water and the warmth and the flow are actually wonderful and can be very beneficial. What advice can you offer about stress management? Stress management, the fundamental is own what you can do something about, right? It sounds so simple to say, but the reality is we all have stress, right? And when you stress about a stress, you got two problems. When you take care of a stress, you got no problems, right? So if one plus one is two, one minus one is zero, the ones are the same, your stressors, but how you operate with them helps to define your outcome. I had one lady who came in with so much stress. I said, write it down for me. And she came back with eight pages in a 15 minute, you know, primary care visit. And I thought, wow. Uh, so I said, do me a favor, make two columns, you know, write down one column, things I can do something about the second column, things I can't control. And when she came back, one page was hers to own. The other seven pages were stresses in her life, but things she couldn't do something about directly, right? So uh, those are the things that go on the shelf, right? And basically every time your mind goes there for the same time and energy, you can come back to your action item list, take one thing, make a plan, get it done, then check it off. And every night think about how much you got done, right? To know that you're actively living your life versus feeling stuck with the things that you can't really control. Yeah, that's interesting. It does sound simple, but it sounds like it could work as well. Now, before we wrap up, I want to ask you how spiritual wellness would be helpful to someone with a chronic health condition, particularly if they're not a religious person. So I think spirituality and religion are definitely two things. I mean, that's kind of known as well, right? Uh, and so we think about spiritual wellness as this idea of contentment and peace. Uh, and that's a very personal de definition for everybody. So I can't tell you what contentment and peace are for you at this stage in your life, but you can reflect on it and think about that, right? And that actually ties into our feeling of well-being, right? So 
what I tell people is, you know, think about five-year plans and contentment and peace, but also stages in life. You know, when you're single versus in couplehood versus having younger children or older or when you're a teenager, at all those stages, contentment and peace are different. So taking the time to reflect on what that means is the first step to actually being able to achieve it. Because if you don't know, if you get in the car and start driving without direction, you're just driving, right? But the minute you have an endpoint in mind, your contentment and peace, now you can map out the path. And even if there are detours and roadblocks and construction, the point is you'll get there because you know where you're going, right? And this is the same way. And I'll tell you that this idea of well-being, which ties into spiritual wellness, uh, there are actually some evidence-guided principles, and they really focus on five things. One is connecting, right? Strengthening our relationships. Uh, we know that one of the keys to sustained happiness is meaningful relationships, right? The second is being active, as we talked about. Physical activity improves our mental, emotional, spiritual health uh, and our well-being, right? Giving, carrying out acts of kindness, right? If somebody is not feeling well, but they aim to do something nice for somebody else, at the end, both of them feel better, right? Uh, and so that's an easy way to think about that. Uh, taking notice, paying attention, actually paying attention. So when we're focused on ourselves, we're thinking about, you know, woe is me. Uh, the minute you pay attention to other people, you start to recognize them for who they are, the journey that they're undertaking, what they're going through. Now we have a different awareness of the world around us and our connection with them, right? And then the last piece is to keep learning, right? Uh, you know, knowledge isn't constant, right? And wisdom is really knowing when to use the knowledge. But if we keep refining the knowledge we have, we also start to understand when to apply it. And that really changes and transforms our living experience as well. Well, I thank you once again for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nanavati. My pleasure every time. My guest has been Upstate's Assistant Dean of Wellness and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy, Dr. Koshal Nanavati. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.